There's a place some of us go each fall, a place where the ring of a bell filters through the covers, and hurried shouts of bird up bring everybody to attention, a place where the playful puppies around our house are transformed here to driven bird finders, and where there is confidence in the slow pace of the silver-muzzled old veterans where our friends tell the same old stories each year, and none of us seem to mind. Where great shots are forgotten, and epic misses never fade. Where an old gun will have a story to tell, if only it could speak to us. Where all the good seats are claimed by the dogs. If you have a camp, you know these things all too well. And if you don't, well, you're always welcome here. So pull up a chair, tell us about your favorite gunner dog, and we'll admire the birds together and talk the night away by the fire. Welcome to Bird Camp. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Bird Camp podcast. I have a guest with me today. We're talking about grouse and grouse dogs. And of course, if you were ever in a bird camp conversation and this doesn't come up, you may want to check what kind of company you're keeping I know that we talk about our dogs almost nonstop, whether it's assessing them, bragging them up, and sometimes giving them a stern warning to stop doing those things. But I have with us today Scott Berg. He is part of Berg Brothers Setters. I believe I did get that right. And uh, you can see his contact information on Setters Unlimited. And welcome, Scott, to Bird Camp. Thanks for having me, Joe. I'm glad to have you on. This is we were just chit chatting just before we hit record about uh, hunting back in the in the '90s and uh, talking about running grouse, and maybe with and, and we'll just jump right back into where we were there with with the bird numbers being high at that time, not noticing if they ran the way we seem to think they do now. Yeah, you know, I, I got out of grad school in the late '80s. And of course, I thought I had all kinds of time because I, I worked full time all the way through grad school. And so when I got done, you know, boom, I had all this freedom and we hunted an awful lot and there was just a, a ton of birds. And so we didn't, I didn't really notice them running if they did. I mean, there was just, you know, so many and, you know, part of it too was with that many birds the the dogs developed quickly and all that. Mm-hmm. But um in my mind, it's been a slow evolutionary process over the last, you know, 30 years that now we have birds that run like crazy. And of course, conditions dictate that. But to, you know, this year we, we had a very dry year here in Minnesota and there was less ground cover. I think that contributes to it. And if you get, mm-hmm. you know, windy days, I, I find they run more. Mm-hmm. Um, and we get later in the season, uh, I don't know, part of it's the change in the cover. They don't run as much, but I mean, the interesting thing about that for, you know, serious grouse hunters is it's uh, sort of made some prerequisites in grouse dogs, you know, to handle running birds, which is very difficult. Mm-hmm. You know, once, once they move from that original roost, they're a lot more likely to just bust. And so that skill set has become you know, really crucial in a grouse dog. Mm-hmm. It is. And uh, 
and nowadays grouse are known to run almost the way a pheasant does as far as distance and speed. I'm sure some pheasant guys will disagree, but <laughs> I've seen some running below the pines, and there's no there's there's no slouch in the run department, that's for sure. But uh, kind of jumping right into how you were saying, the, the grouse dogs then had to also adapt to a bird that really tries to make tracks. And is this something I know you also mentioned too, when cover kind of opens up and that ground clutter starts to disappear, um, being being a bird of, of being a prey species bird, the grouse, everything is trying to eat the grouse and there's no room for a mistake. Um, every time it moves in its natural cover, we, we have over here quite a few birds of prey as well. Every time that bird moves, he defeats his own natural camouflage. And you would have thought that a bird would want to stay still, but for some reason the grouse don't. And, I mean, a lot of them live. I mean, I don't get, I get a few, but I don't get uh, piles of them either. But that well, does, the ones, yeah. The ones that have run like that, you know, over the years, of course, have survived. So naturally that, that trait is passed on. And now we mm -hmm. have more, you know, more, more birds that run. And, you know, hopefully we can tie these sorts of things back into the traits, you know, required of a grouse dog. Um, you know, one of the things that, and one, one of the reasons that I was, uh, you know, excited to do your podcast is that this particular format provides for some good information. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of bad information out there today. And, you know, part of what I see is, you know, that a grouse dog's got to come from here or there. It's got to be a certain line or from a certain sort of testing methodology or whatever. And I've never subscribed to that theory. There are traits that are required, you know, to handle grouse. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I had a, a grouse dog back at that time that came from some, you know, Eastern horseback breeding that had never seen grouse. And he was an absolute, you know, machine. And I've bred to every, you know, type of dog from every type of, you know, testing and trial format and everything. And it's those traits. And, you know, this trait of handling birds exceptionally well. Um, you know, we have, when we're breeding dogs, we have to consider all the traits. Mm -hmm. But if there's one we're going to wait, I mean, they got to get birds pointed. Otherwise, people end up hunting them like flushing dogs. And that's, you know, obviously just not nearly as productive as, well, it kind of defeats the purpose of the point. Right. Right. And then... And the more I thought about this too, because we, we kind of knew we were going to have this this conversation, and uh, those those traits in a dog have to pair well. And I continue to come back to this in my thinking, they have to pair well with the handler. Or or the hunter, you know, we're as bird hunters, there's certain things we need to know about our dog, if if one trait is a strength and one trait's a weakness, as well as you know the bird the bird sits long enough to be pointed what we do as hunters also matters then to make the dog look good in a way as to how we get to the bird and how we approach it um as well as how we allow the dog to develop but uh, a lot goes into it that's for sure yeah absolutely you know that's a really good point that the developmental stage and and 
what we do throughout the entire development, all the way up to the point of how we approach the dog, mm-hmm. you know, makes a really big difference. Whenever I get people that I'm not sure if they know this or not, because we get, you know, between Ben and I, we get, you know, a lot of calls every week. And we're trying to pick, you know, the ideal places for dogs to go. Um, you know, I will tell people, if you want a grouse dog, can't be shooting bump birds. You know, they, it's, it's so difficult for them to handle birds already. If you teach them that they'll be rewarded for any sort of mistake, you're kind of putting that dog at an extreme, you know, disadvantage. So that first year, that developmental year, you know, to get a couple successes under the belt or get as many successes under the belt as possible where you can actually shoot a bird. I, this is sort of the rule I give to people as you're approaching. If you see that dog take so much as one step, you can't shoot the bird. Now, look, there, there are some guys, even pros who would argue with me on this, but you know, in, you know, you know, over the last 30 years, I mean, we, you know, we start, a ton of dogs, you know, I've got a whole group of buddies that helps, you know, evaluate dogs. Mm-hmm. So we see this, you know, constantly. And of course I see other people's dogs and whatnot. And after this many observations, I just can't be convinced that, you know, allow, you know, doing that. And of course, you know, what happens is somebody gets a dog, they're excited. They want to shoot a bird over it, but they teach it the wrong thing. Mm-hmm. And even, even in how they approach the dog, you know, if you come up from a dog, you know, right behind it, you may unnerve that dog as opposed to swinging around and flanking it where it can see you. Not to mention that when, you know, when trying to get a clean shot at a grouse, you know, you're, you know, you're hoping for a shooting alley, right? You mm-hmm. know, that, that serves you better there too. But those developmental things, and I mean, even like I had a client this year who, you know, seasoned grouse hunter, got a puppy. And, you know, the dog was born, I think, May 1st or something like that. He started taking it out in August. I mean, the first pictures he sent me of this dog, obviously he wasn't hunting, he was just scouting. Mm-hmm. But you talk about great for the dog and you can develop spots and, and all that. But, I mean, the first pictures he sent me, the, this dog was so little you couldn't see it in the ferns. It just a little like the tail sticking <laughs> up, you know, out of the ferns. Mm-hmm. We did that and, this year. And that gentleman shot 42 pointed grouse over that puppy this year. Yep. You know, that's. We had maybe, maybe a 15 week old puppy came up to camp and we, it was my hunting partner's dog and he did the same thing. You know, there were no guns, no starter pistols, but we'd get in there, we'd hunt, man, there's a lot of birds over in that back corner. And so sure enough, out comes, out comes the dog and we we did have pointed birds with with this young puppy you know he he ran quite a few of them around first but starting them that young we couldn't have missed the season we we weren't going to let him sit there sidelined and uh, a bunch of positive stuff happened just because of that it's this yeah, this was also the year we had birds we had birds in places we didn't realize you know, that kind of stuff is so great for a young dog. And, mm-hmm. you know, again, one of the things I tell people is, you know, you're hunting, if not the most difficult, you know, upland game we're done. And, of course, I haven't hunted them all, so I can't say that with any certainty. But grouse are just more difficult than most birds. So, mm-hmm. 
you know, A, you have to start with the innate ability and then, you know, B, develop it. Yep. That's another one of the, you know, kind of falsehoods I'll, I'll see on the internet frequently is this theory that all you need to do is put the dog in, in birds and it'll become a grouse dog. I, I have an analogy I use. I'm a golfer. So, you know, I don't care how much the average guy practices, he's not going to break far. He's probably not going to break 80. And that is pretty analogous, you know, to grouse. They have to have the innate ability in, you know, that comes back to a number of traits, but we'll mm -hmm. start with, you know, bird handling. And there's also a distinction there. Bird handling means getting the dog pointed. And a lot of people that that go to, oh, the dog's, you know, got a great nose and, and that's what matters. Well, there's actually, you know, three phases in my mind. Finding the bird, which is about pace and application, you know, how much ground do they cover and how smartly do they do they apply themselves? And then getting the dog, the bird pointed, and then having the kind of manners to keep it on the ground. Because as you know, with grouse, mm -hmm. one step or a little readjustment or whatever, and they'll go. Mm -hmm. So, you know, these are if we're grouse hunters, we should be paying very close attention to this as we pick the parents or pick the lines or you know whatever you want to talk about when when picking our new grouse dogs they have to have all of those traits yep yep and the attribute of the grouse itself you're asking for a dog to and, and in my notes here i have your dog to be a good grouse dog is going to have to be able to perform in mid to late september in a warm environment where the air movement is still you have really a lot of additional visual cover it's hard to run and then at the same time you're going to still hunt that same dog late season when that ground cover is starting to get batted down the leaves are gone it's going to be cold maybe windy and your dog is going to have to apply itself and cover ground in an efficient manner still use its nose and add in then once you lose that ground cover a little bit, it can see the bird. And a whole different dynamic happens again. Yeah, that, that comes back to that whole, you know, manners around game. Mm -hmm. And some dogs just, I mean, they just come out of the womb that way. They just won't move. And that's, you know, what you want for a grouse dog. But, um, obviously, they're, they're not all like that. Can they learn that, though, the... The sight pointing especially, is that something that during that puppy year when you're developing and letting them just run and learn, is this something that you've seen develop? Yeah, you know, obviously some dogs are real natural about it. And again, as we talk about the traits that apply here, mm -hmm. if the dog is very biddable and tradable, biddable meaning, you know, wants to please and, and, and is easy to train, um, some dogs who maybe don't do it completely naturally can be trained to do it, you know, rather easily. Mm -hmm. But, you know, obviously, I mean, definitely, um, we start actually on the prairie. We, my hunting partners and I uh, go to the prairie for two weeks. And, you know, that's one of the big differences is, of course, you can see everything unfold. Mm -hmm. And you will just see the... I don't know, the ones that are just more uh, 
precocious or whatever, whatever you want to call that, how with just a few exposures, they just start picking up right away what they need to do to handle that bird. And, you know, generally those dogs are going to go on to be good grouse dogs too. I mean, there's that's sort of a desire on their part to keep that bird on the ground. Mm-hmm. And of course, you know, we have, you know, very warm conditions there too. And that, you know, that changes the scenting and all that. You know, the the interesting thing about, you know, the early season hunting and all that, the, when I get somebody that calls me and starts talking about pace and application, I know they're a really experienced, you know, dog person. Those two things in terms of bird finding, that's, those are the bird finding traits. Um, application, again, being how smart they go to the various cover. And, you know, when you see dogs that are really good at that, it's just really quite amazing. Mm-hmm. And those are the dogs that will go out and, you know, have, you know, one walk where they point, you know, 10 or 12 times. It's it's just so memorable to watch. I mean, I can think of so many times over the course of my life where these dogs just, it still amazes me to this day to watch them do it really right. Mm-hmm. And then pace is something that very few people talk about. But too slow is not good. I mean, if you're out there looking for $100 bills, you wouldn't want them wally gagging around, would you? Right. Yet some people want a slow-paced dog because they're just more, and if they're, more comfortable with that, fine. But if we're talking about purely productivity, mm-hmm. you want a hard pace. Now, some people take that too far. There are dogs that run around like their butt is on fire. Right. And I find that very, as a matter of fact, those dogs drive me crazy. I want a good hard pace, but the dogs that just run around like that tend to not apply themselves as well. They're most likely not going to handle birds as well. And um, you know, they're harder to handle, you know, they're just mm-hmm. in general, you can be you know, a much more difficult dog. That dog that paces itself like that, I find, I, I call it a composed animal. Mm-hmm. You know, they're focused, they're, they're, they're working hard, but, you know, they go to all the right spots. Plus that pace not only covers more ground, it allows them to maintain, you know, have, uh, you know, have maintain their stamina over a longer period of time. Where some dogs have been sort of bred to just go out and go flat out. And um, I guess if you've got, you know, a truck full of dogs, you can do that. Mm-hmm. But most people don't. And, you know, so that just doesn't work as well. So, so you would say too, as well, like somebody likes a good hard running dog, but still within reason, as I get older or as other friends of mine would, or, or the guy out there that's wondering about a grouse dog, but he's, he's well into retirement, that slow running dog isn't necessarily going to be bad depending on the pace of the hunter, because you do want to kind of pair those two together still, don't you? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah. if, if that's what people are comfortable with, I mean, I'll have, <laughs> we get a ton of people calling who are retiring. I mean, there's just a lot of guys Call yep. and say, hey, I need to get another dog or, you know, whatever, because I'm retiring. And some of them go, hey, I don't get along, around as well as I do used to, so I, I need a dog that can cover some ground. I want them to do the work and <laughs> you know, alternate it properly. Mm-hmm. And some are just much more comfortable with a real easy-paced dog. 
And, um, you know, people should hunt with what they're comfortable with, um, but they should also be educated as to what the pluses and minus, minuses are of those, you know, different kinds of dogs. Right. You do have to play to the strengths of both in there to get a, to get a workable arrangement. Um, when you went, I'm going to jump back just a quick second then. When you said application as well, and you're talking about the way a dog runs where I'm getting the impression you're talking about an intelligent search, something that yeah. the dog is, dog knows what it's out there looking for and is doing so in a way that gives itself an advantage. What does that look like as far as, what are some examples that if I was to watch a guy running his dog, what would I see that would make me think that I have a dog intelligently running? Yeah, the analogy I use for that is, you know, how some fishermen are always on the right spots. Mm -hmm. Dogs that apply themselves are always in the best spots. So dependent upon what you're, you know, where you're hunting and what game bird, if you keep this to rough grouse, but, um, you know, when I go through the woods, I'm looking for all those, you know, little, you know, areas that shoot off into the woods. I don't like walking trails because everybody walks the trails. I want to follow the cover through the woods. So when I'm hunting, I'm, you know, I'm looking for those spots and I expect the dogs to be in those spots and downwind, you know, I, I mean, if a dog runs down the upwind side of an objective, that's not going to do them any good. Right. <laughs> right. And this, this actually leads us to kind of two traits combined. There's the application itself intelligently the hunting those spots but with grouse dogs and i'm sure you've heard people talk about this before you know running with a high head now they're not always going to run with a high head that is a, a bit of a fallacy too because you know the way i actually saw an article done on this once where somebody went and tested wind currents in the woods and they actually had diagrams and stuff showing you know how the wind blew in different situations Mm -hmm. and how sometimes it was closer to the ground and how sometimes it was higher. When you see a really smart dog, you'll see them adapt. They'll be running with a high head, and then they'll lower it for a little bit, and then they'll run with a high head. But in order to point off the bird, they need to keep that, that head up. I'm sure you've seen dogs that, like, start, like, trailing the ground scent and that sort of thing. Yep, I have one. Yeah, it's generally not going to work, right? You have to trail them, and the bird has to be dumb enough to run upwind the whole way. That's the only way that worked for me was the dog has to be on the downwind side trailing, and the bird can't double back. And even then, I found with with my dog, and I know this isn't one of all the dogs, but that's he's playing to his strength, which is I'm going to smell this on the ground and go after it. And eventually, yep, he gets birdie, and they bump. Um, that's that's also why I I have never claimed him to be a good grouse dog either, um, because he doesn't get that head up. He gets onto some scent, and it doesn't work out. Yeah, we and you see that at a very very young age. I mean, literally, we start puppies at twelve weeks, and in the first week or two you can tell how they're going to carry their head. I mean, it's, it's really, you know, pretty amazing to watch. Um, now the so upside what, of it though, I've had him run a hundred yards running down some barely scratched cripples and that weakness on, 
on birds at one end turns into a strength in another spot, but he's out of balance. Yeah, yeah. No, those dogs are, yeah, they're really good at Mm -hmm. running down. Um, um, I have a friend who had a, a dog several years ago, and it was a great, really great pheasant dog because of that. Mm-hmm. And he could never really get grouse pointed. We had him with one weekend, and I, we had a running, you know, when you're a dog breeder, I mean, I spend a lot of time running puppies, you know, just evaluating dogs. And we had a puppy on the ground, and we shot like one of the first birds ever over this puppy. I, I might even been the first bird. And she couldn't find it. He walked back to the truck. It probably took, you know, a half an hour to go get this dog, put it on the trail of that bird, and that that dog ran that cripple's grouse down, you know, Mm -hmm. a couple couple hundred yards away, whatever, two or three hundred yards away by, well, I don't know, it was a long time ago, I don't remember, but I do remember it being a long ways away, thinking, man, that's, that is a useful skill. Yep. But it has to it has to come within the balance, and I'm I'm not going to blame the breeder on that one. I'm going to blame my training, which was very young. Um, me being young, not well, the dog was young too, but that's different. But uh, I've enjoyed it for what it is, you know. And and part of I think everything we do as hunters, you do have to find the dog that you have, and then be able to say, well, you're good at this, and you're not as good at this, and Either I buy another dog to to complement you, or I have to change my style to make up for that weakness. And in this case, we've done a little bit of both. Um, But now, you know, that that bird hits the ground running, and you have uh, the nice thing about that intelligent running dog is you don't worry. How How do you do this where... And I thought about this. I'm kind of rambling. Sorry. I have a pet peeve of if I foot flush a bird, I get on my whistle, and it, it, I don't have to whistle as much now. My recall is, is better with the dogs. I immediately pull all my dogs back in. I, Out of all the cardinal things a dog can do wrong, if I boot a bird without that dog having looked in front of me, get back in here, you're out doing something. I, I ask for more cooperation, maybe. Is that maybe part of the biddability factor as well? Well, you know, people will interpret that in different ways. So this is another interesting trait, and it, t- it ties to application, it, t- it ties to all of these things. But the way I expect a dog to go through the woods, I, I do not, I really don't want a dog... In, in this, there are differing opinions on this too. A lot of people like a dog, <clears throat> excuse me, that checks back in real frequently. I find that to be a complete waste of time. I want a dog to be out in the pocket where it's supposed to be hunting for me. Completely, you know, focused on that, but it's just really interesting how good some dogs are at knowing where you are at all times. Mm-hmm. Now, part of that is developmental. Um, I'll see people in the woods all the time. Dog gets to the side, they turn their head and yell at the dog. That sound goes and echoes behind them. They're not really sure where to go. Yeah. So from the time a dog is a puppy, 
when I want it to go in a given direction, I will sing, if you know what that term means. Yep. And you know, here, where I want that dog to go. And then I don't have to make much noise. If I'm going to turn, I can just, you know, do a little bit of that. And the dog would be, you know, expected to, you know, to roll in front of me and, and stay with me. Okay, so as as it's going, I mean, I don't want the dog in front of me all the time, but there's, it just seems like if I get to a spot where I have good birdie cover in front of me, I would like to know that the dog has either already been there, and a lot of the times now, thanks to GPS, we know where the dog's been, or we know where it's going. We We know a lot more now, I think, about it, now that we can look down and see direction, speed, distance. Is, yeah, that, you know, is that something that you see when you develop a dog and you're assessing it? Oh, yeah. You know, with the advent of the Garmin's and my hunting partners are all, you know, I mean, they're even more into this than I am. Um, we've all got all the Garmin equipment. And you, know, you talk about, you know, the bird camp conversations. When we're on the prairie, there's four of us. And we break into groups of two. I, I never hunt in large groups. And when we get back at night, oh, my God, you know, everybody's plugging that stuff into monitors and looking <laughs> at it. And I mean, we, we have conversations at night that are just crazy. And, of course, everybody's curious how the various dogs did. And we're talking about all these subtleties and which one's got the most promise and and all that. But, yeah, you know, the the, the technology is has certainly put that at the forefront. But we, we also need to... Um, keep in mind the old-fashioned tools, and that's just paying attention to what's going on in front of us. Mm -hmm. I would look at, okay, did I foot flush a bird in a really weird spot that, you know, I didn't, really didn't expect the dog to look? You know, because that happens sometimes. True, yeah. But if they're looking in the right spots, you're not foot flushing birds. You know, that's, you know, that's not going to happen very often if they're... I mean, obviously it'll happen on occasion, mm -hmm. but that should not happen very often if they're going to the right, you know, hunting in the right spots. And, you know, part of it depends too on the cover itself. Is it one of those covers that's just, you know, acres and acres, you know, of, of you know, ideal cover? Or are there slivers of cover that are ideal? Like when you're working, you know, a swamp edge or something like that? Mm-hmm. You know, where the dog should be kind of focused in an area as opposed to, you know, some of the areas that are just much wider and broader that they need to cover. Um, as long as the dog's doing it correctly, you know, you can accept that you know, every once in a while they'll miss one. Yeah. Uh, if they're doing it incorrectly, again, a lot of this is innate. You know, I mean, some dogs just apply themselves much better than others. But there are certain drills you can do, you know, to keep them in the right cover. But I got to be honest, I've just never seen dogs that are mediocre at poor at it overcome it. And the ones that seem to be good at it, you know, really early on. I mean, we see it when we start those 12-week-old puppies. We've got a bunch of cedar trees and, and lines of pines and stuff on our on our property. I mean... After those dogs have been down five, six, seven times, they know where to go. So, you know, I think it's rather difficult to overcome a dog that doesn't have it innately. 
uh, other than to keep putting them in birds and, and letting them learn in mm -hmm. time. Um, there are training drills you can do. You know, you can you can plant birds in, you know, ideal cover and just, you know, hope that they learn from that sort of exposure. But, you know, that's, that's a rough one. Um, to me, that would just say that they learn that you plant birds in ideal cover. Well, you, you you know you have to mix it up on them because if you if you do the same kind of training drills with them, well, then they just know what the training drill drill is, right? Um, yeah, I mean, look, if a dog's not doing it naturally, you you've got a real obstacle to overcome. I mean, intelligence in a dog, and it's funny because there are some dogs that will use intelligence in a bad way, you know, to kind of do bad stuff. <laughs> yep. I mean, even the pointing of birds and, and you know, when we talked a few days ago, I, I mentioned the study that was done at UC Davis. And this, this was very interesting. Again, people attribute a dog's pointing ability to its scenting ability. And this study, and this was well, 15 or 20 years ago when the canine genome was first mapped. It was actually funded by the National Institute of Health. So this was not some small time, you know, venture. They were at, and I didn't even ask them uh, how they were able to do this till the very end. And it was Mark Neff at the University of uh, Southern California, UC Davis. It was a precursor to human mental illness studies they thought that they would find the same genetic markers in dogs that were very poor at pointing. So they sought out dogs that were excellent at pointing and handling birds. And I don't know where they found, how they found the bad ones, but they actually sent somebody to our kennel who DNA'd several dogs and they did this around the country. So again, it was large scale. And to make a very long story short, their findings were that it was, Pointing ability was attributed to how the brain processed the information. Hmm. So really more about intelligence. And this was something my brother and I had seen, you know, early on. And we had always thought that this was true because we would see these dogs, you know, very quickly, you know, learn how to not just point, but handle birds. And, you know, so now, especially after this study, and you know many more years of experience we attribute it to not just intellect because again a dog can be smart and do stuff bad but i think there's sort of a combination of, of traits and skills there that when they have that combination you know we look for that ultimate grouse dog a dog that can go out and just point us a, a bunch of birds on any given walk mm -hmm. we seem to have that comp that complementary skill set if that makes sense Yep. Yep. I've, I've seen intelligent dogs a lot. We do, you know, like you talked earlier, we do some duck dog testing and things like that. And the idea that I want my dog to do it a certain way. And the dog says, but there's a more efficient way to do this. There's an easier and a faster way to do this. And I'm going to do that one. And it's one of those things you, you learn to overcome with training, but it doesn't, you sit there and admire it going, that dog is smart and it knows, it knows the better way. And now you have to show it the way you want. 
and in in the 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 pointing dogs is there something similar to that i know i mean yeah that's sort of that biddability thing that we talk about dogs that just they want to please mm -hmm. and they're smart enough to figure out exactly what it is you're looking for we we break every every dog that we're going to breed steady to wing and shot even though we don't trial anymore it's been a decade since i did any serious trialing <clears throat> but before we trialed and after we trialed, we'd continue to break dogs steady to wing and shot to see those attributes. Because if you don't push it to an extreme, you really can't, you know, measure the dog's capacity to do that as well. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? If you don't, you know, test it in a more strenuous environment. Yep. So we definitely see it there where some dogs just, I mean, they do it so quickly. I actually you know, sometimes I don't know if I'm trying to entertain myself or learn or, or what it is, but several years ago, I taught a dog to, whoa, play and fetch. He really loved to fetch. And I mean, I got him to where I, I mean, he was five months old. He'd be running across the yard and I'd say, whoa, and he just hit the brakes. So the next time I put him on birds, I said, whoa. Bird flew away, shot the gun, he, he never moved. I mean, he was literally steady, steady to eight shot at five and a half months old. I told my brother, I said, look, we gotta, we have to video this because if we tell anybody this, they'll think we were drinking, you know? <laughs> and so we videoed that. It's 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 actually on my website. His name is Brody, five and a half old month old puppy who would just stand there and watch the bird run, you know, fly away. And why? You know, because I played a game with him that he really liked to play. Because, you know, you'd never put that kind of pressure on a five-month-old dog. Mm -hmm. But just by playing fetch with him, you know, I got him to, to, to you know, to love to wall, right? I mean, he thought that was great because then he'd be able to go get the ball. Yep. And then it was serendipitous, actually. I mean, I didn't really intend to do this, but he, he just, you know, went on point, And I just happened to say, whoa, and he didn't move. And I went... Hmm, that's interesting. And I have never done it since. I've never tried to do anything like that with another dog that young since. It just doesn't make sense. Hmm. But, I mean, it does really show this principle that you're talking about here. You know, the dog's willingness to do that. And then us as, you know, dog owners and handlers and trainers, giving them the opportunity to do that in an environment where they can succeed. Because yep. my brother likes to say there's lots and lots of ways to fail now there's certainly more than one way to do it right as well i mean over the years i don't know i had this habit of reaching out to people all over the country i did that when i was first starting to learn and i've done it ever since and so you know i've had these conversations with lots of you know really hardcore amateurs and pros you know across the country and you know, you'll see commonalities amongst how all of them do things. You know, a lot of it's, you know, just repetitious and they, they do things in a way that the dog can understand while they might do them in slightly different ways. They, they all have, you know, for every pro trainer out there, you're going to see, you know, some different methods and whatnot, yet they're all really successful. Well, most of them are really successful because over the years, you know, they learn how to you know, get the most out of a dog. Mm -hmm. Now, grouse being a pressure, I have pressure sensitive wrote down on here. 
is that a trait that you can get in a dog that realizes? And I'm sure that the answer is Absolutely. yes. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, in spades. I mean, that, I mean, it really separates grouse dogs. You can get away with it on, on say, a pheasant who will allow the dog to, you know, pressure it mm-hmm. and get within, you know, 10 feet and still maintain. You know, grouse are so spooky. Like, you know, the really good ones, and again, you know, the scent can be doing weird things and all that. Sometimes I'll, I'll come upon a dog pointing and I can tell it doesn't really know exactly where that bird is, but they know there's a bird around them close. Mm-hmm. And I'll just change my, you know, flushing pattern to adapt to that. But generally speaking, the dogs you see that are really good at handling birds. Again, you know, they're approaching with a high head. And they're moving at a pretty good pace. You know, I find the dogs that kind of pitter-patter around too much make grouse nervous. So, and of course, they're accustomed, you know, the grouse is accustomed to avoiding their predators, right? You know, Mm -hmm. like fox and that sort of thing. So that dog that comes upon them confidently and can smell them a, a good ways off. And sometimes... You know, they'll come in and boom, you know, it's just it, you know, and, and they're not moving. Some of them I'll see turn into the wind and move up a little bit, but they all have this self-assuredness about, I know exactly where that bird is, and now I've got it. And those are the dogs that, you know, pin them down. Now, mm-hmm. some of those birds will still get up and run, and then you have to hope for a relocate. And I say hope because, you know, anybody who's hunted a lot of running grouse know that once they come out of their, you know, hiding spot, you know, their roost or whatever you want to call it, and get exposed and, and are on the move, it's not real likely they're going to let you get close. They, they have to, you know, run into other cover where they want to take cover. You know, running into a swamp edge or something like mm-hmm. that always helps. Right. But, you know, I find the odds of getting them to stay there while you move in while they're exposed is, you know, pretty slim right my experience is that they don't go where they're exposed but you can almost see that there's a a pocket either it's a pocket to a pocket to a pocket where eventually they stop and give you an opportunity and as long as the dog keeps maybe keeps its wits about it you know you don't want a dog that's so bird crazy that it's going to get faster like i've noticed some dogs the first point you're like okay good at the relocate, they kind of just go a little nuts. You don't, that's not really anything I want. And I've seen it just the opposite way where going along at that good modest pace gets birdie, goes to the point. And like you're saying too, as you approach, you can watch the dog's body language. And I think it's usually me or the other people that sound of us approaching the bird runs off. And you can watch that dog go, it was here and now it went that way. Yeah, there's two there's two really good points there. The one I call composure. Uh, the same dog that tends to be mannerly around game is the same dog that approaches with composure, if you will, where, um, I mean, the ones that just, again, run up there like their butt's on fire. I, look, I've seen dogs that could do that, but, you know, I just generally wouldn't bet on that. And and I've seen quite a few that could move to them very swiftly and still pin them down. Mm-hmm. Um, but not ideally what I'm, you know, what I'm looking for. 
I have. I, I, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, go, go ahead. I guess that was kind of the end of that thought. Um, have you noticed when you, maybe this is something that you do or don't select for or have noticed, some dogs run like a horse and they sound like a horse. And some of them, you don't really notice them running through the woods with your ears. I mean, you see them, they're, they're doing their job. Some of them sound like you just, you just flushed 30 whitetails and then the other dog runs by and it's more like a jackrabbit. Yeah, you just brought up, you know, one that is rarely asked of me. Again, you know, the really hardcore guys that, that you know, really had a lot of dogs will ask the question about gait. Mm-hmm. Um, some dogs are very light-footed, very agile. And if you think about this environment where we're hunting grouse in, it's, it's an obstacle course. So do you want an offensive lineman or do you want a really fleet-footed running back? Uh, I mean, and there are many advantages, not just that they're quieter, but that pace we're talking about, it's a lot easier to keep up that pace, um, you know, for a dog that is agile like that, they're going to have better stamina, they're going to get hurt less. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, that, well, and there's a physical ideal there too, you know, an 80 pound dog going to have a lot harder time getting through the woods. Um, I'm really particular, um, you know, when we're breeding dogs, not that I wouldn't breed one that's a little bit smaller than exactly what I like, or a little bit bigger if they're great at everything else is when you're trying to get all these traits in one animal, you know, that's, it's, it's a, it's very difficult. Uh, I have a friend that likes to say, it's really hard to get all them coons up one tree. (laughs) (laughs) All right. And he's not a raccoon hunter either, but he just, you know, anyway, well, yeah, um, that, that trait is um, so important. And then, you know, I like a dog that's around, you know, male, it's around 47 pounds with the females. It's not as big a deal because you won't get many females that are, well, at least in my breed that are too big. Now you get too small a dog, um, you know, they have a harder time and heavier cover. And plus, you know, I do other things, you know, if, if you want to hunt and uh, even some places where you hunt quail, you know, there's heavier covers and places where we hunt on the prairie, it's generally light cover, but you know, there's some heavier cover, but yeah, anyway, a dog gets too small. That's, that's detrimental too. But that dog that is physically ideal with a great gait and a great pace, you know, that's the kind of dog that simply um, is going to cover, you know, more ground, more effectively with less effort. Mm-hmm. You know, the dogs that are really struggling and pounding the ground and that sort of thing. I mean, this is sort of a hard one to put your your, your finger on and say, you know, that, that that's going to take away their focus or anything. But you have to believe it almost has to. I mean, if you're running into stuff and you're having a difficult time, can you focus at the job at hand? I mean, I wouldn't think so, especially when you're getting beat up doing it, you know? Right. And if you spend, and I can see too as well, like that, that thud of the footfall on the, on the soil is, is an amount of force and there's an abrupt stop on that force. And when you start to think about it, I mean, the guy that may spend five or 10 days hunting, 
over the course of the season may not notice it, but if you start trying to put serious miles and serious days off involved, every time that dog runs and that footfall hits hard like that, there's cartilage in there that has to absorb that. There's got to be at a certain point where you say, I'm just, I'm running the suspension off my dog. Yeah, no, you make a really good point. Um, you know, we, we go to the prairie for the first 16 days of the season. And of course it's warm and that ground is harder out there. And you're definitely going to notice at the end of two weeks, if a dog does not have the right physical characteristics, the right gait, um, that two weeks will beat them up. Mm-hmm. If, if they're right at the end of two weeks, you hardly notice it. Yeah. No, that you know, doesn't. They're still ready to go. Yeah. No, that doesn't mean that the dog with the harder gait wouldn't be serviceable as a grouse dog. Just you're going to notice it with that guy that really puts in a lot of time and, ex- and expects a lot of miles out of his dog. Um, so again, you could still match that dog to a hunter, just you're not going to hand him off to a guy that's got nothing else to do in October. Well, well, hopefully, you know, what, what this information and your podcast does is educate people so that they look for these things mm-hmm. because it's not obvious. It's just, I mean, like I said, we take a lot, a lot of calls. There's, that's not something that most people are going to ask. You know, my hunting partners too are that, you know, they're really good hunters and they're, they're, uh, and they do a lot of it, right? I mean, they run their dogs a lot. Um, you know, a friend of mine, Josh Mattel in Northern Minnesota, I mean, he, he owns a construction company. So, you know, come fall, he can do whatever he wants. Now he hunts, five days a week uh that's going to take its toll on a dog that isn't physically right yeah if and my, my if other one of my other hunt, hunting partners paul bukovic um you know he goes to the prairie with me of course and you know runs those dogs you know at length and he's just not a guy that that you know when we shoot our limit we don't we don't go home. We put the guns away and we continue to run dogs. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he runs his dogs real hard too. And, um, they, uh, if they don't have that right gate, um, and they pound the ground, they're going to, they're going to hurt themselves. They're going to wear out. I don't know that it necessarily makes any difference in terms of them handling birds. I believe it's our approach that, you know, unless they move. Yeah, I mean, if, if there's an error in manners, um, that's going to put a bird up. But it is our approach. Um, <laughs> the the As we get later in the season, hunting, you know, sharp tail on the prairie, I mean, it's almost comical sometimes. It's like they know how far you can shoot because you might walk, you know, 200 yards to a dog on point or 300 even, you know, in, in the wide open prairie like that. And they all, if you walk from 75 yards away and get to 50, they flush. Or if you walk from 275 to 50, they flush <laughs> just as you, know, as, you, as you get there. So mm-hmm. obviously they, they get educated. Yep. Um, so I don't, I, don't, I don't think that that's a problem. But, yeah, for anybody who's going to hunt a lot. We, we yeah. joked because some of the loud dogs in our camp, when they do run through the woods and then they hit that brakes and they stop, 
we've attributed it. We didn't notice that it actually busted birds. We just attributed it to that they're so used to the way a whitetail just might spook and run that the only thing they thought of is that gigantic dog is a deer. But then I try to sneakily approach, and I get to that 35-yard mark or so, and all of a sudden the dog says, it was here. It ran when you got here. Off we go again. Yeah, you know, again, one of the, uh, I think, pieces of bad information that I often see, and I don't, you know, I I mean, I go to a couple of the um, hunting groups on Facebook. That's about as much as I do where that's concerned. But I'll see people talking about all the time that, like, I, I, I literally saw a post where somebody said you had to get to a grouse within 22 seconds because that's all the longer that they would hold. And I mean, I had puppies where I wanted to just see how long they'd hold a bird where I, you know, stood there for five minutes. Um, You know, they bust off of us. Yeah. And, and, you know, these, this bad information, I think, tends to lead people to bad developmental practices or bad selection processes with dogs. So, you know, this is great that you do this sort of thing so that, uh, you know, the the people that know already kind of know, and the people who are newer, this is, you know, great information for mm-hmm. them. I've, I've noticed w- with me gaining experience from bird contacts as well, I don't blame my dog for taking a step because I allow for relocation. I primarily hunt. I don't field trial. And once I get to about that 20, 25-yard mark, and I know that I've been noticed, usually I, I know I'm noticed by the bird. The bird doesn't want to die any more than I do that dog will start to change a little bit and I don't expect him to stay steady the whole time in, in that first pointed spot. I forgive an awful lot of that movement because what I'm seeing out of my dog is on the birds that don't move, he doesn't move. If that bird started to move, he's going to do his best to continue to keep that, that, that interval of distance, but he's going to continue to show me where that bird is until it finally does flush and I can get a shot off. And that's another part of that intelligence that pops up in the dog where I think that's part of the conditioning is I've allowed this behavior. And now that we've done this a hundred times, this is now the current mode we're going to operate in. And he knows it. And I think catching on to that quickly helped me when he caught on to it quickly that I was going to let that happen. Um, he doesn't do it when I'm further away because without me being there, the bird doesn't run. You know, and he, and he could stand there, yeah, 15 minutes. As long as the bird doesn't move, he'll be right there with him. You know, I could, I don't want to, but I could eat a sandwich before I go over to the point with the one dog. And that's, that's one of those great traits. Yeah, you know, I've got no problem with self-relocation. As a matter of fact, it's, you know, highly effective. Mm-hmm. It's a matter of when they self-relocate, how well do they handle that relocate, you yes. know? Mm-hmm. Um, and it, uh, it's, it's, it's sometimes a running bird. It's sometimes, you know, that the careful dogs come into a spot. You got one of those weird, this is anyway how I attribute it, what, what I think happens. The, the dogs that are careful come in, they get that scent, and they're not quite sure, so they stop quick, and then they go, hmm, no, the bird's not here, and, and they move on. Yep. Now, it could have been that the dog ran long before or whatever happened, uh, 
but yeah, I've got I've got no problem with that. And the the really good ones are going to do that, you know, mm-hmm. fairly regularly. Is that also part of a, a handler friend of ours from across the state? Um, does a few different drills, but in the end, it comes down to especially woodcock and grouse, where they're in that primary spot, and as you hunt into the cover. The dog, of course, gets birdie points. The bird's been gone a while, and I've noticed it with the pointers as well as with flushers. There's he calls it scent discrimination, and he says that, it, and it's an experience trait. It it bases itself off the dog's ability to learn. But this scent was hot, but this isn't where it is now, and. I've noticed you, we call them unproductives. We've stopped calling them false points because the dog is smelling a bird and the young dogs especially takes a little longer. What's, what's kind of a, what's kind of an expectation I can, I can look for with, with that trait as it comes out in the dog. Is there. Well, yeah, you know, that really supports that whole concept of how the dog processes information, doesn't it? It does. Um, the dogs that are really good at that will fairly quickly um, say no, that that bird was there and move on. So in that couple of weeks of our first trip of the year, you know, to the prairie, you know, I'll see, you know, seven, eight, nine month old puppies that, you know, the first few days, you know, are struggling with that. And I mean, I've seen dogs that just after a few days have already figured that out. And some, it may take much longer. And again, you know, these are the questions you want to ask, um, you know, breeders as you, as you look for grouse dogs, mm-hmm. uh, you know, how have they considered that trait? These are all, you know, questions that should be asked of the parents. You know, it's just not very realistic to think that you're going to go out and hunt with the parents of every dog that you're considering a puppy out of, right? Right. So, you know, hopefully you know the right questions to ask and hopefully you're getting, mm-hmm. ho- hopefully you have a breeder who is interested in, in placing a dog in the right place and will give you, you know, real candid answers. Right. And especially too, I, I've learned too, the, the, the best thing you can do is ask the breeder first off, do they hunt? Well, let's hope so. <laughs> I, I, the, I, well, and I'm, the more and more I think about it, what I do is I hunt. Um, what a lot of people I know do is they, they hunt. And a good breeder, I think, will also ask some questions back, which I'm sure will be another podcast at a different time, um, because you want to know what the person is going to do and and try to pair them up. And, again, I come back to the pairing it up because – the amount of teamwork that goes into this, we're talking about what a dog needs to have available mentally and physically uh, to do this job we're asking it to do on a game bird that is really its entire life spent on a, a razor's edge of survival. And then you have to pair the strengths of this dog with a hunter that you want everyone to succeed. Um, and, and again, the, exactly right that these questions are going to put the breeder into a position where he knows enough about you and, and how you hunt or what you hunt or the style you prefer to hunt um, to be able to answer questions and either say, you don't want one of mine, 
you want one of this other guy's or vice versa. You definitely want one of mine. Um, is there, an, and I'm going to jump real quick into another one. With grouse, earlier in the year, we still find broods. You know, some people call them coveys. And then later on, as the as the dispersal happens, right, we get into a bunch of individual birds. Have you noticed in a grouse dog the? I know they have to be able to handle both. Is this is this again one of those application traits that we're talking about, where a dog can shift between, you know, seven or six or five of these giant bird? They're you know they're much bigger than quail, but in a way that that brood acts like a quail covey shouldn't make any difference as a matter of fact in some ways a brood is easier to point because there's so much scent there mm-hmm. again that high-headed dog is 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 not taking ground scent he's taking all that air scent and there's a lot more air scent you know with a covey does, um, it, does it cause confusion in dogs and is that something i should worry about or look for no i i have definitely not seen that um you know, I'm just sort of thinking through my, you don't run into nearly as many broods. Of course, you know, I've, I've hunted quail a lot over the years and I've hunted on the prairie, a lot, you know, a lot. I mean, I, mm-hmm. um, and, and, and so that's a lot of cubby birds, but we get a lot of singles and pairs there too. And you really won't see much difference there in, in discerning that. They do have to be generally speaking a little bit better at handling a cubby have to stay further off of them mm-hmm. um not so much in the woods uh you know on the prairie they have a century bird and uh you know those birds will bump and then you know, the rest of the birds will go you know broods are are generally younger birds and of course uh you've got all that cover early in the year so i've never really found broods to be all that difficult hmm. Okay. I've, I'm just kind of curious too, the way, and I, I was just kind of wondering too, like, as we know, when a brood starts to move, they don't always move in a clump. And I'm, I was just thinking about that as if that would offer confusion to a dog. Now, I don't, you know, like you're saying, okay, it's not really a big deal at that point, unless that dog already has something else where say that bird moving off creates more excitement than caution that brood is going to be 10 times worse on that dog's mentality than it would be if he was cautious on a running bird that that's a very good point i'll come back to the whole composure thing again Mm -hmm. you you know with dogs that are composed that's not going to rattle them at all now any young dog can get rattled okay um you get all fired up yes i you know i wouldn't worry about that a, a whole lot if it's happening with a seven, eight, nine month old puppy. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, composed dogs are composed. They'll come into that situation and what they know is they need to point and stand there. And the fact that there are a number of birds there won't really change that for a dog with those attributes. Hmm. I have an easy one here for you because I already know the answer, so I know you do. The nature of the grouse over the course of a season starts out with with those brood cover areas they disperse and this year we had a long dispersal the more i talk to people you know just that i know hunt 
we had a lot of time where those birds had busted up and went into spots where normally we wouldn't find them. And then again, a lot of guys had some productive uh, conifer hunting in December again, where those birds then are in that, that thicker conifer cover. The, the dog then you're looking for as a grouse dog, how does it adapt between what is clearly going to be some some much different styles of cover, right? We start out with that heavy ground cover. The air movement is lessened. It's hot. It goes into a spot in dispersal where you could find birds in more mature oak groves or beach. And uh, we had a lot of beach brush this year. It was kind of weird hunting because you couldn't see your feet. And you're walking through just waiting for like a where we were there's some logging so you were waiting for a skitter trail and a two-foot elevation change and uh, sometimes that happened and it sucks but uh i have a bad i have a bad knee already from a, a pickup game of football and there were a few options out there where i i was like you know that hurt more than i thought it should have and i'm like okay better better take it easy for the rest of the day but I mean, we're asking a lot out of a bird dog then to be a grouse dog to go from three very distinctive kinds of cover. Well, you just uncovered a number, another one of those questions that people should be asking or, mm -hmm. um, you know, when you ask the breeder, you know, what is your criteria? How are you separating dogs? How are you determining a female that will be kept for breeding versus one that's cut? And by the way, you know, how many are you evaluating? Because... Obviously, there's a really big difference between looking at two females and picking one to breed as opposed to looking at 10 of them and picking one to breed, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, what are the attributes uh, that you're looking at in those dogs to say, this is a dog I want to breed? The adjusting the application is another thing that the good ones are going to do. Just think of how widely varied the hunting that my hunting partners and I do, huge, wide open. I mean, some of those pastures out there are, you know, six, eight, 10, 12 square miles without a road through them, other than a two track, you know, mm -hmm. and the cover goes on forever. And if a dog doesn't run and cover a bunch of ground out there, you're not going to have very many contacts. We measure contacts per hour, whether we're you know on the prairie or, or in the woods. We take those same dogs in the woods that are, oh, they'll roll anywhere from 100 to 300 to occasionally 400 yards on the prairie. Now, there are guys certainly that have dogs that run even bigger than that, but that's really what, what we like and what we find to be, you know, really productive. Take those same dogs in the woods and they're 75 to 125. Some of them might punch out to 150, but... They've gone from an environment where they can see you perfectly to an environment where they can't see you at all, and they're still sticking with you perfectly. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's sometimes pretty just amazing the, the capabilities that these animals have, you know, to do that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But they really should be able to adapt. Um, and you're talking about adapting within different grouse covers. Same concept. Yeah. Um, you know, as it tightens up and there's more cover to work, they should be a little bit more mechanical, if that makes sense. You know, a little bit 
they're more diligent in their sweep, you know, kind of turning over every rock kind of thing, mm-hmm. where um, when a smaller percentage of the cover is likely to hold the greatest percentage of the birds, they should adapt their, you know, their range and their application accordingly. Yep. Yep. And I'm, I'm also thinking to it in this way and too, and I, I like to come back to this, this partnership with the hunter and the dog, especially too, when, when you're saying, okay, I can have a prairie dog that might punch to four, but at a hundred and a quarter in grouse cover, he's already turning that corner coming back in and, and working with me. A lot of that then, not all of our covers are that big. You know, a hundred and a quarter is a good distance. And I, I like just under that even, but then when you get into one of these dispersal zones, 250 might be a great number all of a sudden when that ground cover is gone or, or much lessened. Um, but at the same time, then, how do you feel about the, the hunter's goal being, I need to be standing as close to where the grouse should be as I can, right? That, that still holds no matter what the range of my dog is, right? Sure. Is that... Does that, however, do, does the dog somehow get affected? Like if I, if I know what I'm doing around grouse habitat, as well as like, like I really enjoy woodcock hunting as well, I can stand where I know woodcock should be, and I'm within gun range of them. Now, I don't want my, my setter or my GSP here to always be within gun range. That defeats the purpose of them being a pointing dog. Do dogs learn that I need to stay close versus I need to punch out? Or at a certain point, I, I know the answer should be that they do both, right? Yeah. Um, I love a dog that grows into a run. And, and again, you know, people have different opinions on this. Um, there are some people that like a dog that just has a big motor and from the time they're little is, is just, you know, really, really flying. I have found over the years that the dogs that start to use their athleticism and their drive um, to reach out to find more objectives. You just see them mm-hmm. grow in their range. That again is that composed, intelligent animal that's going to hunt very smart um, and, and be really productive. So yeah, I would encourage people really pay attention to that and really, you know, in, in your dogs and and in any dogs that you're interested in, and any dogs that any, um, you know, parents of, of puppies that you're thinking about um, investing in, pay attention to that trait, because dogs that hunt like that find a lot of birds. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, we've hit just over our magical time, so I'm going to get two more things kind of wrapped up. One it's not really a grouse camp kind of questioning sort of time without something to do with what kind of gun do you usually shoot? You know, I am a dog guy. It's funny as, you know, I mean, I've been into this my entire life. I even worked for a gun distributor at one point. (laughs) And then this is, you know, this again was shortly after grad school and that I worked for him so, you know, I'm 60, so, you know, do the math. That was, you know, 30 years ago, 30 plus years ago. And I got a 20 gauge Weatherby over and under. And 
before that, when I was 16 years old, still I had my mom take me over there and uh, sign for the gun. I bought a, a Remington 870 20 gauge plain barrel Empress cylinder. Mm-hmm. And I shot a pile of grouse with that gun. And the idea of getting an over and under I like because I will shoot generally a skeet barrel for the first barrel. Mm-hmm. And then either improved cylinder or light mod, just depending upon, you know, like if I'm on the prairie and it's windy um, or later in the season or whatever, I will approach the dog on the longer barrel and then switch over when I get close. Because mm-hmm. if I'm walking up and, you know, the dog does nothing wrong and that bird flushes at, you know, 40 or 50 yards, um, yep. you know, I, I, I want to be able to shoot one. So that's a Weatherby Orion you had, right? Yeah, yeah. And then I bought it. I bought while I worked for that distributor. I bought a 16 gauge Browning uh, that I rarely shoot. I, the only time I shoot it is on the prairie. Hmm. Um, the that Orion is just beat to snot. I've actually been thinking, you know, it's maybe, an older... it's, time for me, maybe it's time for me to buy another gun. It's an older and, model. Yeah. Well, yeah. It was. Uh, oh yeah. I mean, that was bought. I mean, I got that in like 88 or 89 or so it's one of the old skb weatherbees yeah exactly yeah those guns are amazing (laughs) they're almost they're almost too light to handle well my my brother had one and it's like zeus's lightning bolt well and i really prefer a pistol grip i know a lot of Mm -hmm. people you know like my hunting my hunting partners you know really knows a lot about guns and he's into them and has the european stocks I, especially when I was a young man, would walk through holding that the barrel up, pistol grip, and moving brush with my left hand, mm-hmm. you know, especially as I approached the dog. So I really preferred the pistol grip, but uh, now I tell you what, I really don't know much about guns. That one, was it the full pistol or was that the Prince of Wales half grip? No, it's, I think it's a full, full pistol. Yeah. Yeah, that that is an amazing handling gun. That is, uh, those are yeah, those are amazing. Those are one of those that uh, if if you find one, and that's one of these side notes. Then quickly, if you can find an SKB, whether it be Orion, they handle and point a lot like at one point I had picked one up and I'd thought hard about buying it, and that was a Caesar Guarini Woodlander, which is another little over under twenty I got to pick up and. I did not purchase, but it handles very similar for a lot less of the money, but very, very nice bird gun, especially if you do a lot of quick mountain shoot. They're, they're really cool. (laughs) My partners have a couple, you know, really nice side-by-sides and I'm a little bit intrigued by that. So I think the next one might be a side-by-side. There, that's what I've graduated. I say graduated too. I just decided one day I really had to have one. And there's there's something about it. And I'm and I'm one of those kind of guys that likes the side by side. I shoot one of these little I have a twenty gauge from Germany. And and anyone who knows anything about me, I have my little flat British shooting caps when I go hunting and I have a pipe. So it makes perfect sense that I would have a side by side. Um the only the only advice for anyone I would have for a side by is two eyes on the bird and don't think about the barrels. 
otherwise they handle beautifully and they're they do they just handle beautifully but a lot of people start to think about those two barrels and oh the sight plane the second you start to think about that thing like it has a sight plane those aren't clay targets those are birds look them in the eye and pull the trigger and and all of a sudden the magic starts to happen but uh yeah, no, they're neat, neat, neat guns, and yeah. I think that there is one in my future here. It's, it's, you know, funny you say that because I just, you would think somebody that hunts as much as me would be more into guns, but I, I don't know. I've always been so nuts about the dog part of it yep. that um, uh, I'll never forget. I was, I was sitting in uh, a blind. The first kind of competitive things I ever went to were the, you know, that U.S. Open pheasant shooting championship. Hmm. And I'm sitting in the blind with this guy, and um, he had a. This is when I was working for the gun distributor, so I I knew what it was. He had a, a, a Beretta double E double L, and you know how much many of those are. And <laughs> he proceeded he proceeded to tell me he owned like five or seven of them or something. Yep. <laughs> well, okay, um, but I don't know. It's just. Uh, I've just never been into that part of it. Yep. My my wife's grandpa, old Grandpa Tucker, loved to hunt. Hunted a lot in his own way. He turkeys, deer, some upland stuff. And he did almost everything with an old 870 Wingmaster. When he died, he had two barrels. He had a tight barrel. He had a, an improved barrel. And I don't think if he... He may not have even had a second shotgun. If he did, it, it wasn't mentioned, and he never mentioned it in a story but you can you can be passionate about hunting your whole life and there are some guys out there that you know they pick up a quality you know used case knife at a flea market a gun that works and then they never look into anything else and in a way I can envy them because I've poured thousands of dollars into my <laughs> guns that I could have done something else with my dad's yep. one of them too like after owning a Browning, he goes back to a black plastic Turkish pump and swears by it. But he don't miss much either, though, so he's got something right. That's <laughs> Yeah, I, you know, I've known a number of people over the years that have huge gun collections. Which, which is okay. I mean, guns yeah. are cool. I yeah. just... Uh... Yeah, like I say, I've just I've been so crazy about the. You've had the a dog, dog collection. Yeah, I mean, um, yeah. even when, and of course, it's a hobby for me. The business is my brother's, but mm -hmm. I'm his free labor, and we've done it together since we were kids. So, you know, I help because I I want to. Plus, just you know, to help him take all the calls and that you know that's that sort of thing. But uh, um. Even when we were amateurs, we had, oh, you know, 15 dogs between us, and I combed a bunch of dogs with other people and that sort of thing. So even back then, we were pretty into it. And, of course, now he's got a 5,000-square-foot state-of-the-art kennel, and my little hobby 10-stall kennel at home looks like <laughs> you know, nothing in comparison. But, uh, so, yeah, it's been a lifelong thing with the dogs. Yep. Well, we're going to wrap up here with one more thing. We did a little bit with guns, and it wouldn't be bird camp without a memorable story. So 
in all these years you've been out, and I'm I'm not going to ask you to be, I'm not going to look for anything in specific, but I'm going to leave it really open-ended as, give me a hunting memory that involves some, you know, some or one of your dogs and uh, what kind of makes it significant? Boy, that's a good one. Um, I had a dog that, um, this again was back when I first, you know, got out of school. And that dog that taught me what a great grouse dog was, I mean, he was just incredible. I mean, if he bumped a bird, you just went, whoa, because, you know, he just didn't. Um, But my final hunt with him was just so memorable because I, it was kind of a weird deal. I've never guided before in my life, but the guys shooting a television show for ESPN called and um, they did it. You know, it was two guys on the phone and the one was uh, the person who was organizing this and the people that they owned a huge ranch. And they said, if I would come out and, and do the show that I could come there and work dogs anytime I wanted to. Well, that was such a great deal. I said, okay. And, and, but Part of it was to guide these guys, right? Mm-hmm. And then they were going to shoot the show. Well, you know, I'm running around you know, the country hunting with these guys. And they were like, well, they, they were asking about the old dog. You know, he was like 12 or 13 years old. So I told them about him. And they said, oh, we'll take him out. And I took him out. I mean, he was, you know, it was pretty warm. I mean, I knew he was good for about 45 minutes. And all three of them, they were shooting 28-gauge, shot their limit over him, and they just shot one bird per covey. But he went out and just had this perfect run. You know, he just did absolutely everything perfect. And the very last bird they shot flew about 200 yards and dropped. And he went and got that bird and brought it back. And I said, that's it. I'm choking up even thinking about it. I'm retiring him. Hmm. It was just incredible. Yeah. Dogs do that to us. Uh, he was that just ultra composed animal. If you saw him off task, people would say, God, does he, does he hunt? I mean, he was just so laid back. Mm-hmm. And you turned him loose and he had that perfect pace. He hunted, you know, hard, but very under control. And his application was phenomenal. And it didn't matter where I took him, you know, what state, what birds we were hunting. You know, that adaptation you were talking about, mm-hmm. I mean, it was incredible. I mean, with him, it was uh, one day and he had it down. So, um, yeah, that, that, I have many very memorable hunts with him. Um, <laughs> there, there was a time I took this friend of mine, you know, from work hunting, and he said, okay, everybody talks about this head dog. Put him down. I want to see him. And this was real early in the year. And I had this, this road I would hunt where I would just walk down one side and come back on the other. And it was so thick, I said, let's just send the dog in and walk down the road and we'll turn around and come back. And he looked at me like, are you crazy? But he said, oh, okay, supposedly you know what you're doing. <laughs> and, and he pointed 14 times on that walk. Wow. I mean, it was so thick. We didn't shoot that many. I don't even remember how many we shot, three or four out of the 14. I mean, half of them we didn't even get a shot at, literally, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
but um, it was just kind of memorable because you know, this friend of mine looked at me like, are you nuts? We're going to walk down the road and just send the dog in. Of course, you know, back then, that was long enough ago, we didn't have Garmin's. We just had a beeper collar. And I would run run that in the point-only mode, you know? Mm-hmm. And the and the beeper would go off, and we would, you know, go in. But, yeah, that dog was some kind of member. I still miss him to this day because... Yeah, you know, not only was he great, but God, just the dog didn't know how to get in trouble. Just incredible. <laughs> well, on that, I think we're going to wrap it up. Ladies and gentlemen, you've been listening to the Bird Camp Podcast. Our guest today was Scott Berg. He's with Berg Brothers Setters. You can see him on Setters Unlimited, as well as we are talking about grouse dog attributes. And we will continue this another time because we've only kind of scratched the surface of what we would like in a grouse dog and how they work with us. If you enjoyed the conversation and you want to support the podcast, please go to Patreon. Uh, We don't ask for much. The cup of coffee cost or the happy hour special price is all I ask. Uh, Because if we were to have this conversation together, then uh, it might be my turn to buy and it would be coffee or a drink and That's all I would ever ask out of any of you as well. In the meantime, until we meet again, thank you, and I will see you on the next podcast.